Welcome to the Outsider Theory Podcast, where we explore the mutations of theories outside of the authorized spaces of intellectual life, as well as the ever-alluring figure of the outsider. If you're interested in this project, please subscribe to the podcast and follow my work at OutsiderTheory.com and at OutsiderTheory on Twitter. Today, welcoming back return guest Brian Chow, who last time spoke to us about the rule of midwits. This time we'll be perhaps discussing something uh, related, which is a kind of automation of midwittery, at least that's one way of looking at it, in the form of the new chat GPT, uh, which has taken the world by storm since its launch, I believe, at the end of November. So I wanted to get Brian on because he's been doing some interesting tweeting about his experiments with this, um, you know, new and improved uh, natural language generation uh, chatbot, and uh, particularly focusing on its, uh, the, the implicit sort of political catechism, as he calls it, that seems to be um, inscribed into it by its programmers. And so, you know, much of the conversation about this subject, you know, has revolved around on one hand, automation and how it might affect jobs. And then, you know, the second point that tends to come up with these sorts of things is some kind of larger philosophical question about, you know, what, uh, what makes humans humans, um, if all these things we associate with humanity can sort of be, um, can be, you know, reasonably successfully automated. So this will go in a somewhat different direction um, because we'll be thinking about the the politics of this type of uh, this type of technology. And so, you know, first of all, Brian, um, how did you first, you know, get interested in this this question of, you know, what's the what's the kind of implicit politics encoded in this um, GPT chat? Uh, you know, what, what did your first experiments uh, show you? What kind of things did you find? Um, you know, for those who haven't, who haven't already been following your uh, posting and writing about this subject. Right. So it, it's quite interesting. I've had a background or an interest in machine learning for quite a long time, longer than I've really paid attention to politics at all. So I was roughly aware of the kind of developments in language models, just following it passively and through my friends. And uh, really, like if you check out, if you checked out of the development in, say, 2018, which is the time around the time that I checked out or at the end of 2018, and, and you came back just recently, you, you would really, I, I think, quite be impressed with just the practical uh, applications that have been developed out of machine learning. Uh, ChatGPT is a very good example of this. You see basically a text interface like you would see if you were texting a friend or something like that, right? And you just enter, you enter your question and the artificial intelligence, the AI does its best to answer uh, whatever question you have. And so I think that I first looked in terms of the political angle, I first saw other people doing the same thing Rather, people were kind of prodding the limits of what ChatGPT was um, uh, was kind of permitted to say, 
where it, it gave off basically suspicious answers, where there are interesting kind of uh, very blatant contradictions and uh, double standards. I saw, I, I'm by far not the first person who has experimented this with this in just in terms of just kind of entering some prompts into the bot and seeing, seeing what comes out. Uh, but I think the thing that I really added was I just went through OpenAI's blog, which I'd kind of been following passively, and pulled up this article or the, this uh, paper from 2021, which basically documents explicitly how they have tried to set ChatGPT and other, other OpenAI language models to conform to certain set of uh, values, right? The, the values-oriented data set, I think, is the term that they use themselves, that OpenAI use themselves. And that's what really launched me into either getting all of these experiments done, figuring out like exactly how far this goes and also kind of documenting it and providing it to the public, of course. Right, so on one level this, um, you know, what, what you found about, as you said, kind of um, this, you know, attempts to uh, encode certain values in this uh, machinery you know, it seems consistent with kind of what happens to the internet more broadly, sort of in the second half of the 20 teens, uh, you know, particularly kind of post Trump election, which is that, you know, that um, there's suddenly all this concern that if and, and, you know, here we could talk specifically about this idea of of misinformation. Right. And so you know, whereas earlier in the decade, you have um, this fervent liberal advocacy for a so-called free and open internet, you know, you have them, um, you have like the Obama administration, you know, sort of demanding that, you know, various countries in the Middle East cease censoring the internet. And you have this kind of alignment with this idea that, you know, that this sort of classic um, cyber libertarian idea that information wants to be free, and then, you know, once you get to the Trump election and, and Brexit as well, you suddenly have this um, this new ideology that emerges that, you know, actually it's quite it's quite dangerous to just let these these technologies, you know, um, run without being, you know, explicitly governed by, you know, the, the values that we want society to continue to be run in accordance with. And so, you know, similarly with this, um, you know, with this and, and, you know, another point I'd make here that, you know, we, we might get into is there's been a lot of talk of effective altruism recently because of the FTX collapse and Sam Bankman fried But, you know, one of the main interests of effective altruism is this concern about, um, about machine intelligence, you know, sort of, turning evil right and and um and destroying humanity right this kind of sci-fi um fear about uh you know a sort of terminator type scenario and so you know one thing that's kind of interesting here is like at least the way i would read part of what's going on here is that you know you have the standard kind of new set of values that have come to prevail in much of silicon valley where it's like we have to actually you know, make sure these technologies are, are explicitly governed and, and sort of encoded with the liberal values that we want to prevail. And so, you know, the way this plays out, as you show in one of your examples, is that, 
you know, you ask, you prompt GPT, uh, chat GPT to uh, are, offer an amicus brief, I believe, in favor of overturning Obergefell, which is the, the Supreme Court decision that establishes gay marriage as the law of the land. Um, and then it, it basically says it can't do that, that it would be unethical to do that. And that also, you know, there's something um, there's something, you know, wrong or legally problematic about attempting to overturn a Supreme Court decision, which is ludicrous. And then you do the same thing for Citizens United, right, which um, which is the the major campaign finance decision that, you know, famously determined that, um you know, corporations or people or whatever. And in that case, it's perfectly happy to, you know, provide the amicus brief in favor of overturning this decision. And so that's just like a clear, a clear cut example of where it will, it will come up with this kind of specious logic in order to claim on, on supposedly neutral grounds. Right. And that's, that's the point is, is that's sort of interesting here is it, it attempts to make a procedural case for why it can't give you the thing that you're, you're asking it to do. Whereas, in fact, um, you can easily show that it, uh, when prompted to make a different sort of argument, is is perfectly happy to. So, I suppose you know part of what's part of what's notable here, and I've seen this with other examples, is that it it attempts to present its unwillingness to engage certain arguments um, or you know issue certain types of claims or explore certain information. Um, it, often it tries to justify these in seemingly neutral terms, right? That this is simply procedurally inappropriate or it's inappropriate for the, you know, it, it will sort of say things like, you know, I, I do not, uh, you know, like it will actually speak in the first person and say like, I do not have opinions or feelings. I am just a, you know, I, I'm just a, um, um, I'm just a machine and I'm just trying to share useful information or something like that. So yeah, yeah. it'll kind of um, make these these procedural and technical arguments for why it can't engage with these things. But then you can easily show that it does that selectively. Right. And so I don't know. I mean, to one extent, as I was suggesting, this this seems kind of consistent with the way that um, all of these these sort of procedural arguments are used to, you know, say, take down certain posts, but then are applied inconsistently when you know, uh, misleading posts are aligned with, you know, Democratic Party ideology or whatever. And so it, I mean, I don't know if, you know, to what extent is this a sort of continuation of how we've seen big tech sort of turn in the past, you know, six or seven years? And then, you know, perhaps to what extent is this something new or a kind of new frontier in that set of developments? Right. I think that in terms of the tactics that are being used to kind of push for this politically, right? It's the same kind of lobbying. It's the same kind of, you know, protection racket. It's a nice company you got there. It'd be shame if something happened to it, right? In terms of like the politics, it's very similar in terms of how these activist groups are trying to, uh, are trying to pressure um, open AI or various other AI organizations into censorship. Uh, with, with regards to the kind of actual, uh, so there are multiple questions there, right? One is the one is the political kind of behavior. One is the kind of uh, supposedly neutral standards, right? This kind of proceduralism that happens, and another is like the underlying technology itself, right? How does that play into the attempts to censor it? So I'll try to answer those in sequence. 
I kind of already answered the the, the one about um, about how it's pushed for politically. I do think there it's largely the same. In fact, in some cases, it's exactly the same organizations. So you have basically the same organizations that advocated for uh, social media censorship, that advocated for search engine censorship. They're just being ported over basically like one-to-one, right? That there are, you know, there are some kind of uh, branching off or some kind of variation, but you can pretty much tell it's the same organization. And that's sort of what I'm working on. Uh, now, part of what I'm working on reporting out. Uh, and then number two, so number two, we have the uh, neutral ground, right? This is, this is pretty interesting, this kind of strategy to try to always frame it as a sort of procedure, as a sort of thing that's applied fairly, uh, I do think that that's something that um, exists on the kind of rhetorical level. But in the what's very interesting about OpenAI's case in particular is that usually, right, you get that kind of um, basically smokescreen language, and you do get that in terms of the OpenAI output occasionally, right? You'll get you'll get certain filters that trigger certain kind of uh, det- basically like word detection that happens where if it's certain topics, then I'll say. Okay, this is a this is a machine learning algorithm that is not able to form strong opinions or experience emotions, so on and so forth. Um, but on others, on the actual training methodology, right on the on the paper that details how they do this, they're actually kind of very aggressively explicit about what they're doing. It is really a smoking gun, where it's like they they're not subtle at all when it comes to basically just saying out loud what they're doing. I think I'm going to try to pull up the, uh, if you give me a second, I'll pull up the article right now so I can quote from it or quote from the paper. But I think it said something along the lines of, we will we will attempt to use this procedure or we will attempt to use the, these uh, machine learning techniques to make the make these language models conform to our predetermined set of values, like it doesn't get more kind of explicitly totalitarian than that. So it's like it, it really is, you know. I'm usually someone who tries to avoid making the kind of maximalist claims. Who tries to make make things sound more extreme than they are. But if you read the paper, it is really kind of like the most extreme sort of smoking gun that you can expect. Yeah, here, here it is. Yeah, the, the human evaluations involve human rating how well uh, model output conforms to our predetermined set of values. Just, just, just putting the game completely out there. Uh, do, you, do you have anything you want to add, or should I go on to go on to how the underlying technology is going to change the kind of dynamic here? No, only I mean only that. Yeah, it seems like there's a you know as you said, they're relatively explicit about all of this in their own. Um, you know, explanation of what they're doing. And so it's more on the level of what the chat bot it's, you know, tells you the reasons are why it doesn't, uh, why it doesn't want to, you know, talk to you about Alex Jones or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. That, that it, it, you know, it's, so it, it tends to be, you know, again, this hidden in these appeals to, or, you know, the great example you gave of the, you know, where with the Obergefell decision, it sort of claims, bizarrely that you you know it's unethical to attempt to overturn a supreme court ruling <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> which, so. which is also just like false information right this is something that's attempted fairly regularly that it, that succeeds right semi-regularly 
right and, and has done so in a lot of in a lot of notable cases as well right um yeah i think that what's what's really interesting about this kind of rhetoric or this kind of presentation is that with open ai it's sort of um it's actually this question that i talked about with um jacob siegel on my podcast um he he brought up this amazing point that uh, machine learning is a technology that's sort of like naturally naturally amorphous and changing. You don't really know if it's been kind of substituted, right? We we had this example of soap where like oh if you have some soap even if you don't really understand how it works even if if you don't really understand you know like the chemistry of why it helps you you know stay cleaner you can still learn to wash your hands and you can kind of see that it's like the same soap. It's the same deal happening every single time, right? It's not much that's changing there. But with machine learning, you have this insertion of complexity that itself generates complexity, where like the machine learning algorithm itself is generating, you know, more uncertainty, more variables in your own life. And um yeah, that, that does seem particularly interesting in, in this dynamic as well, in the political dynamic. I think um, there have been like various people who have also documented the changes to chat, excuse me, the changes to chat GPT, like David Rosado, who is just periodically giving it the political compass test. And he found that originally it was quite far left and then it went back to the center. And I think someone else did another test and now it's further to the left again. So you can see it like wobbling back and forth, right? And of course there may be, um, there may just be variants in this as well. So it, it is really kind of much more difficult to measure at least compared to say, compared to like um, a person who has to commit to like a fairly consistent set of values. Right, and this, you know, I, I suppose, um... It kind of goes to this, I mean, in some ways it goes back to this sort of uh, question about humanity, you know, this sort of philosophical question that tends to get raised around these things, whether it's, you know, generating text or, I mean, I remember it from like the first real advances with, you know, um, AI ability to play, you know, games like chess or Go. And so, you know, this, um, this question of what, you know, if, if, I mean, in, in the educational setting, of course, what everybody's been talking about is that you can essentially prompt it to write papers. And indeed the papers that it produces will be at least grammatically. And, and sometimes, you know, in terms of the kind of larger coherence um, of, uh, you know, of, of sort of sentence to sentence and para- paragraph to paragraph, you know, more, uh, <laughs> uh, more, more readable than the average sort of uh, college freshman's output. Um, considerably so often, (laughs) but, but, you know, but then that kind of goes back to what the nature of this technology is, right. Which is that it's, it's, you know, it's based on, um, amassing these enormous training sets, right. And then, you know, essentially, um, accumulating examples and, and emulating them in some way, you know, to, to oversimplify things a lot. And so what that means is that, you know, I mean, it's interesting, right? Um, you know, so that sort of raises the question of like, what, what sort of opinions, if any, should this, um, this technology have, right? And I think you mentioned that, 
some readings suggested that, you know, the reason it was generally giving sort of answers that would sit well with liberals is simply that it was it was trained on, you know, largely sort of establishment media text. Right. There are other people who suggest that. I'm I'm relatively skeptical of that. Right. I mean, and partly because, as you say, that the the people who designed it themselves seem to be saying they're actually slanting it more explicitly than that, right? Yeah. So, so um, you'll probably link my article, right? In in the article, um, in part one of the article, uh, I talk about the paper. I directly link it. You can read the paper for yourself. Really, it, it kind of like keeps getting worse as you read it. <laughs> Um, it is really kind of exceptional, uh, in, in that sense. Um, yeah, they are very, they are very abundantly clear about what they're trying to do here. And that is to, you know, like really every time I paraphrase it, it sounds like an exaggeration, even if it's not. So I'm just going to quote the same sentence again, right? Like the, the human evaluations involve human rating, how well the model conforms to our predetermined set of values, like it does not get it does not get much more explicit to that. Uh, so I would say that when it comes to when it comes to the kind of uh, dynamic here, where where people are kind of attributing it to biases, I think that that's always um, I think to some degree that's always been a kind of um i don't want to say cope because i don't think that's quite what it is but but like something similar right the, the main thing here is it's the kind of like more socially respectable argument i think if, if you say that like basically you know people if you say that like this is kind of like john stewart thing right john stewart i think very clearly has a kind of social circle where he knows that if he says that uh, journalists are clearly, you know, political actors, then he'll be, and, and like clearly like left-wing political actors, then there'll be a pushback against that. But the kind of like socially acceptable thing is like, oh, everyone has their kind of cognitive biases or, oh, they're just going for clicks, right? That's kind of like the, the that's like the, the much, much weaker claim that's just like convenient to make. Um, and you've actually ha- had uh, John Asconis on who, who points out that, that a lot of those critiques don't really make a lot of sense, right? I really enjoyed that episode. But um, yeah, I, I do think that this kind of, it goes back to the kind of proceduralism that you were talking about as well, right? It seems, it, it's kind of like painted as low to kind of point out that, you know, these people are like clearly left-wing, right? Even if... Um, even if that's like objectively measurably true (laughs) or like, even if there's a kind of self-confession for it as there is in this case. Yeah. And I mean, I I think this also raises a question, you know, of this, I mean, so when GPT, you know, when, when it says, uh, you know, I'm not a human being and therefore I don't have opinions. uh, I mean, on some level it's, it's, that's true. Right. Um, So it's not, it's not stating a falsehood when it when it says that, right? Um, so you know what's what's sort of more interesting is the ways it it both you know tries to encode a certain kind of um, a certain range of opinion within the you know within the rubric of its kind of neutral 
um, information gathering and, and transmitting functions while at the same time then using that as a kind of way as a way to escape the the prompts to explore some opinion that might be outside of that range but you know then i think it raises this kind of larger question of what um you know what sort of opinion or range of opinion would we um expect or want the um the ideal version of this technology to to have um you know i'm you know i brought up the effective altruism you know the effective altruists being obsessed with um sort of runaway machine intelligence uh destroying humanity concept in part because it sort of reflects this this larger concern that if we have an incredibly powerful technology that has no sort of values encoded into it or has the wrong values coded into it then um, or, or you know, w- about which we haven't thought consciously about what values we want to be encoded in it. You know, there's sort of all of this danger um, in that scenario. And so that's kind of the most extreme version of that argument. Um, you know, the more the more basic version we've heard recently is is the one that would affect, you know, uh, various social media algorithms, um, search algorithms, and so on, where, where basically they'll say, well, we, we need to um, ensure that this, you know, favors, uh, quote unquote, high quality information and sort of, ex, you know, expertise and disfavors, quote unquote, misinformation, right? And so, yeah. you know, I think um, it's worth sort of also separating out the larger question, you know, that, that, because of the people who have power to determine these things in Silicon Valley, who they are demographically, what their political leanings tend to be, you know, we've seen a particular version of this play itself out um, in ways that, you know, you and I would, would generally agree have been, have been quite bad. Um, you know, is there another way of thinking about the, this larger question of, you know, what, I mean, is is the project of of encoding values into this kind of technology um, inherently suspect? Um, is there a version of that that would actually be more defensible? Um, I don't know. This is you know, it's it's kind of a big and and more abstract question. But I guess right. I'm trying to separate out the the specific you know way that that has played out. Um, in recent years from the larger question that, you know, again, this kind of extreme like AI thought experiment, you know, sort of runaway AI thought experiment tends to get at, which is like, you know, if if we don't uh, give these powerful technologies some kind of guidance, some kind of moral guidance in a sense, then, you know, all these disasters may, uh, may um, ensue as a result. Right. Yeah. What's super interesting about the kind of EA critique of these kind of runaway super intelligences. I think Richard Bruns put it best on my show, which was he said that like bureaucracy is an unaligned super intelligence, right? So, so AI is kind of forcing all of these like rationalists to, to kind of deal with the problems of culture and of embedded values and of this kind of like McLuhan-esque understanding of how technology and media shapes the underlying values of a system, but in this kind of like weirdly contained and like siloed out way of just applying it to um, just applying it to artificial intelligence. 
I, I do agree that the underlying question is actually extremely interesting. Sorry, I missed it the first time. There was just a lot to answer. Um, but what do you guys, okay, so there's, yeah, there's once again, multiple things to make of this. So there's what to make of the kind of EA response understanding of it. I think it is kind of important that EA is like, buy everything other than name a secular and a secular uh, or like basically an atheistic movement. Um, there is the kind of like NYT New York times legacy protection scheme. Right. And then there's like the, yeah, there, there's the idea of like, if, if this thing becomes much more powerful, then is it, then what kind of approach should be taken to encoding values to it. Right. I, I think like, the the thing that's underlying all of that is sort of the people who are most likely to encode values into it or have already encoded values into it are kind of like the worst people for the job, right? Like almost like literally the worst people for the job in terms of like people in the present. Um, where uh, I, I make this point in an article, I'm not sure if it'll be released by the time this podcast is released. But I make this point that essentially, um, that essentially there's two ways of thinking about technological adoption. There's like the pluralist way and the totalitarian way. And the, and the way I define it makes this mutually exclusive. So the pluralist way of technological adoption is that you don't really care what technologies are being adopted by people with differing worldviews. Um, you really believe in kind of the technology itself, the underlying technology itself to do good and to bring self-improvement to people. And then the, the kind of totalitarian way, and I, I have been searching for another word, but there is no real word that's kind of like a synonym for totalitarian that kind of like describes this and isn't a propaganda term, but that basically wants uniformity, that wants all versions of the technology to be based around the same kind of opinions and the same kind of moral values, right? Like, what do you call that ex other than totalitarian, right? It really is just like, we, it is literally total. It is literally, we want the entirety of the pie to be the same as our slice of the pie, right? We do not want, we do not want differentiation in the, when it comes to the use of this technology. Like that is the position. That's not a caricature of it. That's literally what the position is. Um, as, as you can see from the open AI paper and from a lot of the rhetoric around, uh, around the old versions of the internet censorship fights as well, right? It is the same kind of ideology. So like the first part is like in practice, right? In practice, the current people who would encode values into it will encode exactly the wrong values into it. Um, when it comes to like the greater philosophical angle, right, if, we, if it becomes far more um, capable of like the primary amounts or the primary uh, contribution to scientific efforts to discovering new drugs, for example, or to engineering problems and so on comes from artificial intelligence, then should we have any kind of interference with its values? Should we try to... Uh, put the same moral system into uh, the future. Uh, that's quite interesting, right? Because I think there have been similar debates throughout the past of whether we should do the same for our children, right? Uh, and I'm not, I'm not a kind of moral philosopher. I'm less well-versed in this 
than you know most people who have spent time think about thinking about it. But my kind of intuitive answer when it comes to that, right? When it comes to like, should you embed moral values into your children? Is like yes. It's like a very clear yes. You know, it's not like I've read tons of philosophy on this. It's not a very you know well considered opinion. But my intuition is like actually quite strong. On this, yes, you should be teaching your children. You know, you should be teaching your children whatever moral values you think are are good and correct.、Um, so, however, you know, this comes back to the kind of pluralism versus totalitarian model, where it, it is sort of like there, there is no other option, right? That that you know, you, you're spending your child as a child, you spend most of your time with your parents. You're going to naturally pick up on their moral values, right? There, there's kind of no choice there, right? It, it's sort of inevitable.、Um, whereas,、um, whereas with artificial intelligence, because it can be kind of copied and and you know sent packaged in an API and coordinated and sold as like a software business deal, right? It's actually not very obviously the case. That you're going to get many different variants, and we can talk about that more. But I think that going for a kind of pluralist vision, where people have basically different ideas of what、um, priorities AIs should have, what kind of moral decisions it should be making, and can be able to use AI in order to further their own interests, that I think is going to be a far better world than one where all of it is subject to kind of the same moral code. So something I think about in relation to this type of technology quite a bit is、um, going back to Plato's、uh, critique of the technology of writing that、mm-hmm. um, you know he attributes to Socrates. But so I mean I wrote when I first started you know seeing the the output of these types of、um, natural language generation、um, algorithms. You know what what struck me was. You know, on one hand, the reaction was, you know, the, the one that you see over and over again with these types of technologies that there's something uncanny or creepy about it, right?、Um, that you know, it, it seems like it's kind、right. of this, this、um, displacement of the human, of you know, qualities that seem fundamentally human onto this machine.、Um, so part of what's interesting here is that you know, this is more or less exactly the terms in which Plato. Um, frames his his critique of writing, right? Because the point of it is that it takes、um, the logos, right? It takes the the、um, you know the the it takes the human voice and it it displaces it onto this、um, this third you know this sort of out of body、um, technology, right? And so you know what's what's uncanny about writing is that it、um, it. It simulates, and you know, at at its best, can kind of simulate the rhetorical effects of the human voice, right? And this is something I've I've emphasized as a teacher of writing at different points when I've done that. Is that you know when I mean in this, I I don't think it's something that most writers are necessarily that conscious of. But you know, one of the things you have to be able to do as a writer is to、um, compensate for the loss of certain things that. Uh, that you have as a speaker, right? Like the ability to modulate your voice,、um, you know, the addition of of expression, you know, facial expressions and gestures,、uh, things like that. So, you know, you don't have any of that in writing. Writing is is fundamentally dead in some sense, right? And that's that's what's sort of creepy or uncanny about it to Plato, right? It's it's just it's dead letter to use the the standard phrase. And so then the question of how it becomes animated with something like 
you know, the soul, right. Or the, the low, you know, how it becomes animated with the logos is, is sort of the, the fundamental question of rhetoric, but for Plato, what's dangerous about writing is that it separates it from character in a sense, right. From eat from, I mean, and there's this way that writing instructors, you know, usually starting in high school, we'll talk about ethos as well as logos and pathos ethos is, is essentially character, right. It's, um, it's, it's the idea that writing should be in some way shaped by um, the sort of integrity and authority of, a, of a per, the person who produces it, right? And, and should some way, in some way reflect um, their, their moral attributes, right, that make them a trustworthy um, source, right? So, you know, what's kind of interesting to me about all of this is that it, it touches on these questions that, you know, Plato first introduces in relation not to machine writing, but just to writing in general, right? Because what it does is it enables the separation of discourse of logos from individual human beings, right? And therefore from the question of their moral character, right? From the question of, of who they are, to what extent we can trust them as people. Um, and so it, introduces all sorts of of moral conundrums right which of course connects to this whole question of sort of sophistry i mean i think you know one way you can in my opinion you can think about the output of the of chat gpt is as you know it, it's often engaging in a kind of sophistry right and that that example of like oh you know i can't um it would be unethical to attempt to overturn the supreme court decision is is an example right. of that um so, but but part of that, I think, points to a more fundamental question, right? Which is that, you know, when we have this technology, it is um, it is operating at a distance from any, I mean, by its very nature, it's sort of operating at a distance from, you know, it, it, it's operating as a kind of aggregate, as a kind of um, output of this kind of aggregation of discourse, right? That, that inherently um, cuts it off from individual, human voices and thus the kind of, you know, the, the soul that animates those voices, right. Um, that, you know, and the, the sort of question of the moral integrity of particular individuals. Right. And so that's, you know, I, this is all, you know, relatively abstract, but, you know, part of what I think is interesting about all this is this, these whole questions of values is that I think it, it really goes back to this whole question of, of the relationship between writing in a sense and, and moral, you know, and, and moral character that the Plato first raises and, and sort of shows that writing, you know, in so far as it separates the voice from the person is, is sort of always going to pose this problem. Right. Right. This is something that I've become kind of extremely interested in in a short amount of time. I mean, this is really what I think was my kind of like, biggest L in 2022. A lot of predictions I made kind of turned out right. One thing that I kind of just definitely regret is um, not coming to an understanding of kind of McLuhan and kind of this kind of uh, technological shaping that happens. Because I think one kind of obvious connection that you get is that like, I mean, there there is Plato's critique and then we can look at it in hindsight and we can see the ability for civilizations to scale up due to this kind of impersonal trust, right? This is a kind of economic history narrative that I think is quite common, right? Where basically the ability to place trust in kind of larger objects, whether it be kind of, uh, I forget, I'm forgetting the original author now, but um, this person who coined the term like big gods, 
right? Uh, Christianity, Islam, Judaism, these kind of like centralizing total gods instead of local gods that allowed societies to build up, have more abstract notions of how people relate to each other, of basically being able to have more complicated economic processes. And of course, many, uh, many conservatives, uh, especially coming to terms with what that has meant lately in terms of uh, politics and in terms of kind of uh, traditional values. But that kind of sea change, that kind of social, um, I'm, I'm very sorry, uh, that, that kind of social change when it comes to um, how people, how people are oriented towards each other, how people kind of produce and engage with each other, I think is a very important fundamental question. And I'm actually really glad you raised that. I was not expecting, I was not expecting this um, podcast to go there, but I'm very glad it did because here, here's one kind of point that I want to start it with, right? Is that AI is kind of like, there are these ways that it's being shaped to be this kind of like feminine, hesitant, like afraid, like non-committal um, type of, um, answer where it does not have a kind of passion where it does not have a kind of intensity that a lot of people that would normally be very associated with something that's very human something that's maybe associated with an athlete or um or a startup founder or something like that where you know like an athlete like if you ask an athlete like are you gonna win uh win this tournament let's say like let's say it's like a a single athlete tournament, let's say it's like tennis or something, right? Are you going to win this tournament? Every athlete, you know, every, at least every kind of like top, top, let's say like 10 athlete or something like that is going to say, I, I'm sure I'm going to win this, right? I, I'm like very confident in myself. And, you know, like if they said, if you went up to them and said, you know, like I'm going to start a betting market, if you're so sure of yourself, then go like all in on yourself, like put all of your life savings on yourself. He, uh, that person might, might, uh, maybe you know come come to their senses and maybe give a more reasonable estimate of their likelihood of winning the tournament but this kind of commitment this kind of like uh this kind of like confidence in making a case this kind of like um uh commitment to commitment to basically reasoning that is not derivative right uh that is divergent from the kind of uh, statistical mean uh, is something that sort of is not really capable. The AI is really like not really capable of doing in any stable sense kind of by, by really like the methodologies in which it functions. It really much is a kind of like statistical aggregator that kind of predicts that kind of predicts what is likely to be the next word basically, or what is likely to be the next phrase. And so if you really want it to kind of have these types of um, these types of like really being invested in an idea, then it really does take, I think, like a different kind of um, I mean, there, there's a way like the reason why I'm kind of like stumbling on on this this like last part of the argument is that it's kind of circular, right? Like, 
like the thing that I was about to say was like in order to make it in order to give it the sign of sense of commitment, you really have to basically you know create a function that creates this kind of commitment, and that sort of is a nonsensical answer, is a circular answer because it's not really telling you anything about how you would do that, right? Um, but basically, like right now, you can think of you can think of machine learning algorithms as fundamentally still trying to like hit the center of the target, right? And when it comes to basically like different distributions, different um, outputs that could possibly be true, different things that are likelier or less likely to appeal to an audience, you're you're really trying to hit like the center of the distribution, um, and that naturally leads to a lot of hedging. What's interesting, the kind of like social dynamic where I find this interesting. Um, I, I'm quite frankly, like, not so sure how to kind of finish my answer on if we want to make AI quite different, but I think that would be difficult. What's interesting is that kind of humans have evolved more in this direction, not like literally evolved, not like genetically, but kind of have culturally changed more in this direction, especially in the past few decades, right, with kind of uh, increasing HR laws, uh, feminization, increasing basically... I think like increasing social anxiety generation by generation, basically people themselves, right? There's this very funny meme that like machines will pass the Turing test, not because we made the machines act more like humans, but because we made the humans act more like machines. Uh, it is kind of the case, uh, at least marginally, that this is true, where the social norms, particularly in my generation in Gen Z, has shifted much more towards this kind of non-committal, paranoid, um, way of behaving where people are just are just like afraid to committing to things, both committing to things like kind of intellectually, but also afraid of committing to things, you know, just interpersonally. Like I, I'm sure I'm going to be at your uh, at your party or something like that, right? So what's what's very interesting is that, I mean, the the like the classic economics take, right, is that um, you're going to have uh, Ricardian exchange, you're going to have basically people who do things that are not done very well by machine learning algorithms to be favored. And that might ask, you know, whether we're going to see human norms and evolve into a direction. And here, once again, I mean, like culturally change, culturally evolve in a direction that is much more basically, um, much more, much more committal, much more upright, much more, or like much more upfront, much more about kind of sticking with an idea instead of being sort of safe and non-committal. Yeah, I, so I mean, one thing I'd note, which I alluded kind of looping back to what I said when I introduced you is, I, let me, um, I'll just sort of restate it and, and you know, maybe ask whether you, whether I'm, whether I'm getting your point right, but you know, you you wrote previously about um, the rule of midwits, and you know we can think about this in terms of the various um, kinds of conformist pressure that prevail today in various kinds of social settings and institutions. And so, you know, an, an illustration of this would be, and you know, I think this is a point that has been made by various people lately is. You know, if you look at kind of what chat GPT can can produce in terms of, say, like an article, you know, whether like a, a news article or a, a take like an opinion article, you know, it does it does kind of resemble, you know, the, just kind of um, baseline, like 
dumb mainstream liberal media crap <laughs> that you can read. And so in that sense, it, it does threaten to automate, you know, at least the work of the sort of, um, you know, 25 year old liberal arts grad, like, you know, churning out um, woke takes uh, for, you know, a hundred dollars a pop for, you know, these, these various kind of woke clickbait sites. Um, and so, you know, part of this just, you know, goes back to your point about how, uh, I mean, the, the point that, you know, machines pass the Turing test to the extent that we um, come to resemble them. But, you know, is there in this way a kind of alignment between the technology as it's developed, which which tends towards this kind of, um, you know, averageness, we might say, uh, you know, within at least, you know, as as extracted from the sort of permissible realms of discourse and the the tendencies of the culture, right? Is there a is is it is it not just that the the you know that the people in Silicon Valley who have been working on this technology um, exhibit the the standard biases of their social milieu, but also that there's a kind of larger convergence between sort of mainstream culture and, you know, not just the specific types of ideas that the algorithm finds uh, permissible, but the, the larger, you know, kind of approach that it, that it embodies. Yeah. Yeah. Like the way to think about this, right. Is that bureaucracies are like literally computers. They're, they're not kind of like theoretically computers. They're not like analogized computers. They're literally computers in which people kind of like, instead of wires, you have like paper that's shuffled back and forth. You have, you know, like literally like code, right? Like legal code that is being applied in this sort of algorithmic sense, right? So th there is a kind of obvious there are like obvious not just parallels but sort of like it's the same dynamic that's happening here that sort of forces people into certain routines of behavior uh and i think that that's right however um i'm not sure the takeaway like a lot of people are kind of pessimistic on artificial intelligence you know there's a peter Thiel line uh ai is communist crypto is capitalist or something like that uh which i which i disagree with as well I don't think that's the thing with artificial intelligence. The thing that makes it very interesting is that it is the sort of like adaptable technology. There is this very interesting asymmetry in which the kind of finishing touch to um, these algorithms is much easier to do than the kind of initial training, as well as just running the algorithm is much easier to do than the initial training. That kind of first step is by far the most expensive. So you can easily see a world where, say, the initial model is released and can be customized to suit a variety of different specializations, whether those be kind of like moral decisions, moral preferences that are being embedded, or whether that's literally, you know, AI that's better at re reading law, better at reading code, better at reading English or French, right, so on and so forth. There are all sorts of kind of practical um, utility that comes from this as well where that variation doesn't exist in bureaucracies, right? Like you can't take the FDA and fork it. You, you can't make like a parallel version of the FDA that's just like 5% less risk averse, right? That, that's not something that can be done in, with current technology, but it is something that can be done with, uh, with just technology in general, right? With, with um, artificial intelligence, 
Uh, this was also, to not go off on too much of a tangent, this was also some of the allure of blockchain, right? It was that you can essentially have these kind of digitized systems, you can have these digitized versions of corporate boards, uh, and someone can just go and take the structure and copy it, right? They can duplicate the structure exactly, and then they can make various changes to it. And if there's a sort of internal schism, they can say, we're going to copy this code and we're going to make the changes that we want and you can stay with your old code and we can see who's who's doing better in a year, right? That, that, that's sort of the appeal that's there. And I think especially when it comes to artificial intelligence, that appeal is very real. Uh, very real in, in terms that it's technically feasible, right? The technology to do it is already here. Um, what's what's more difficult is sort of having cooperation on these grounds, right? It's It's not... While it's possible, while it's actually quite easy for these artificial intelligence organizations to kind of open source these models, you know, there are various motivations for them not to do that. So I've sort of had the thought that if I, you know, there's been a quite a bit written about uh, already, already about, and I mean, I, I foresaw this several, you know, maybe four or five years ago and when I was, you know, in the university and started, um, you know, making it a kind of explicit subject for, for discussion and reading, um, in some of my classes, but, um, you know, that of course it, it's, um, it opens up a new frontier of, of essentially plagiarism of, of cheating, um, and so on. Um, you know, one thing that I, although, you know, one thing that I, I would do if I was still teaching at the moment, which I'm not, um, I think my basic response to this would be, that you know you could have a whole class that would actually be about um where where students would be graded for generating prompts for the software <laughs> right and, right and then yeah. for you know and then for writing reflections on what we learn from the result of you know this prompt versus that prompt um it, it seems like there you know there's actually quite a bit to be to be learned from that um on all on all sorts of um on all sorts of fronts so, you know, that's that would be my suggestion for, uh, you know, those in the education realm who might be listening could be a useful uh, pedagogical experiment. Um, just, you know, what, uh, you know, how can you, um, instead of sort of banning it or whatever, um, you know, I mean, do the part that that is still essentially necessarily human, i.e. the generation of prompts um, to, you know, uh, to generate texts and then figure out what exactly we're learning about the nature of this technology as well as as well as other things um so perhaps to finish off I was wondering you know what what sort of um experimentation would you like to see in practical terms with this um what what kind of further developments would you like to see and and also what you know what else do you um, plan to explore around this uh, this technology and this sort of subject matter? Okay, um, I'll answer this in reverse order since it's that's probably easiest. I do plan and I have been contacted by some people who have maybe more resources than me. Uh, I, I have a lot of interest in really kind of entering the, this seems like a very good time and place to enter the arena in terms of creating an organization that sort, sort of tries to open source and reverse engineer these models and basically make them politically neutral provide a kind of alternative that is basically functional 
for essentially defensive purposes, right? I think that in the coming years, you're going to see a huge swath of a huge swath of automation. And a lot of that is going to be with partisan biased artificial intelligence. And quite frankly, like something that's very important is just doing kind of like the basic defenses, right? So, I mean, I personally would not want, you know, I personally would not want red states to be like, you know, ultra mega AI, we're going to adopt that version of the AI. But it would also be quite, I mean, they also obviously very clearly have an interest in not just going on with a standard kind of open AI uh, catechized version either. Um, So to me, I think there's a lot of fertile ground in the next few years in terms of just releasing versions of AI that is basically um, neutral ground. And I think that that is going to see a lot of adoption just in terms of organizations that would very much not want to have the sort of already activist influenced versions. Um, so, so that's what I'm going to be particularly working on in terms of the technical side, in terms of the reporting, uh, definitely expect more to come about open AI, about language models, about the kind of future of, um, about the future of either language models or artificial intelligence in general. Uh, now, what experiments would I like to see? What, what do I want other people to work on? Um, I mean, just in terms of technical challenges, in terms of kind of compactness, in terms of efficiency, in terms of, you know, just how fast you can get the models open source and reverse engineered uh, and maybe even improved, right? We've seen some cases of that with stuff like stable diffusion of, of taking it even a step above the existing organizations. Uh, any kind of competition there is very welcome to me. You know, like maybe maybe if I were to run this as a for-profit, like I would be regretting that. But honestly, like I, I just want to see more of it. I think it would be, I think it would be amazing to see more of it. Um, so, so that's the easy answer. In terms of what else I would like to see, um, honestly, like maybe you would know this better than I, but I do think this is sort of a golden age for the humanities. I think like this, this is actually maybe like a very kind of like meta contrarian take, right? There, there's a lot of people because it's kind of like the way humanities is done, kind of like you're, you're like median kind of like middle, middle kind of like, you know, average uh, college humanities class. Like that's not what I'm talking about, right? That is going to continue to be mid to poor. Um, when I'm talking about like, it's a golden age for the humanities, I'm talking about, I'm talking about some of the questions you raised in this podcast, right? And that many people are, are raising uh, kind of EA is sort of effective altruism is sort of trying to do that as well in its own kind of special autistic way. Um, but yeah, I do think it's a kind of golden age for the humanities where artificial intelligence has raised a lot of those underlying assumptions in uh, in our institutions and really put those to question in sort of these like clear, graspable, understandable ways. And um, I, I do think that's really quite beautiful. I don't I don't know if I have a particular direction. I mean, we talked about it a little bit, right? I think that that McLuhan has a particularly good interpretation. Um, certainly, going back to going back to the classics is probably not a mistake. 
Right. I, I don't have, other than that, I don't have kind of like detailed answers on my kind of specific reflections on the humanities, but I would like to see like a lot of people, a lot more people doing that. Like that actually seems like something that would be very interesting to see and also very kind of very real and very important to actually consider those questions. Um, so more humanities, that's my recommendation. Uh, Great. I love it. Um, yeah. And people might look at a uh, friend of the pod, Justin Murphy's recent episode on this subject, because he does, I think, converge with you on this point that, you know, there there is a there, there is a great opportunity for, you know, people broadly aligned with or or involved in the humanities, particularly the sort of public humanities, if you will, um, that that's actually, you know, that that you know, contrary to what's often claimed there, there, I mean, obviously, as I said before, we can see how this kind of automates a certain type of midwit take. Um, but at the same time, you know, there, there are opportunities that emerge with, with this kind of technology and the way that we respond to and engage with it. Um, so yeah, Justin had some interesting things to say on the subject too. Um, I will, I will try to remember to put that, the link to his show, to his recent show on this subject in the notes. Um, cool. Well, that's probably a good and sort of, at least from my perspective, op reasonably optimistic way to, uh, to end things. So, uh, people can find you at, uh, cactus.substack.com from the new world, uh, which is both a newsletter and a podcast. Um, so you have been writing on this subject recently and will continue to, they can also follow you on Twitter. Remind me your handle. Uh, at psychosort, P S Y C H O S O R T, all all one word. <laughs> Which I believe, yeah, you you explained that the handle on the previous episode. So if people missed right, it, right, check that out as well for the full uh, background on that. Yeah, so listen, just, listen to Jeff's other episodes, uh, all yes. of them. <laughs> yes, please do. Well, yeah, thanks for joining me again, Brian. Um, you know, great subject, and uh, you've been doing some of the best coverage of it uh, so it's uh it's great to be able to talk to you again yeah thanks it was really fun coming on excellent mm -hmm.